This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I am professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Genetic Testing and Stone Disease. Our guest today is Dr. Kyle Wood. Dr. Wood is a fellowship-trained endourologist who's currently on staff at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He is associate professor and vice chair of research in the Department of Urology, and his research and clinical focus is on kidney stone disease with a special interest in oxalate. So first and foremost, Kyle, uh, thank you so much. I know we, we've emailed back and forth a few times about the importance of, of the content we're going to cover today, and I, I really appreciate you making time on a Friday afternoon to join me for this program. Thank you, Dr. Rahman. I uh, look forward to talking about genetics and kidney stone disease. I really appreciate the AUA putting these podcasts on. So maybe, you know, let's just start with um, the 20,000-foot view, and then obviously we, we can talk uh, in greater detail on on a lot of these different sort of more nuanced elements, but really just for our, our listeners here, what, what, do you, what are we gonna be covering in the next 25 to 30 minutes? Just give us maybe the high level view on what's coming um, in the next stretch. Sure, you know, obviously kidney stone disease is highly prevalent and we see a lot of it as urologists. And I think oftentimes we forget about the genetic t- conditions that can cause kidney stones. And, Many population analysis have demonstrated that the genetic conditions resulting in stone disease are magnitudes higher than those in the clinical cohorts, and so suggesting that we've been underdiagnosing our stone formers. And we play a unique role because we have many touch points with these patients, and uh, they present with kidney stones at, in the emergency room, in our clinics, and we often have to go to the operating room for them. And then with the advancements of treatments, specifically in primary hyperoxyuria, it's really essential that we play a more active role in the diagnosis. And genetic testing has improved leaps and bounds. It's become readily available, lower cost, and there's uh, limited barriers now to genetic testing. So um, that's a a great summary, and I feel like it sort of is... uh... It's sort of like the sampler plate of what we're going to be covering in in the next thirty minutes. So let's just let's talk a little bit about uh, the contribution of genetics to kidney stone disease. I, I feel like you know obviously most of us focus a lot on um, lifestyle modification, whether that be diet, hydration, uh, different elements of nutrition. But but maybe talk to us a little bit about um, genetics and how that really plays in, and maybe how we all need to be a little bit more cognizant that this is a potential risk factor in some of the patients that we see. Sure, thank you. Yeah, you know, we see a lot of stone formers and if we're following our AUA guidelines, we're often performing metabolic workups on those patients that have recurrent stone disease or at high risk. And we know that stone disease is multifactorial. We see that in their metabolic workup when we do 24 hour urines. But, you know, again, in some of our population, there is a genetic cause. And when we talk about genetic cause, what we know most about is the monogenetic causes of kidney stones. In some of our patients, we may, it may be an enriched population where we can diagnose it. So those individuals that are afflicted with chronic kidney disease, uh, kidney failure, early onset. So if they're forming stones at a in pediatric uh, setting, 
you know, if they have a strong family history or other presenting symptoms like nephrocalcinosis on imaging. And then with some of these genetic conditions, we do see other systemic findings or disorders. And so that should lead us to think about it. And then we all have those patients that say they have a jar of stones that they've passed over their lifetime, or they have radiographic evaluation that shows these large uh, kidney stone burden. And then if they, again, if they are highly recurrent, we have to start thinking about it. And like I stated in the summary, if you look at the population analysis and the estimates of those with monogenetic kidney stone disease, it's magnitudes higher than what we're currently diagnosing the population with. And so we're knowing we're missing the genetics of kidney stones. And this is a perfect opportunity to start considering the genetics of kidney stone and start thinking about stone formers as just not one type, but multiple different types and just add it to our evaluation of these individuals. So you, you've talked to us a little bit about um, some of the, the data from the population analyses, and, and you, you've sort of highlighted that it's, it's obviously magnitudes higher than, than the current population that we've diagnosed. Um, are there some specific numbers or are there some specific studies that you can give us a, a sense of just using genetic testing, uh, whether it be CKD, chronic kidney disease, whether it be, whether it be true stone patients, maybe give us a sense of some of the studies and, and, and really the data on genetic testing. Yeah, there's some really powerful data out there that suggests that genetic conditions could be resulting in some of the manifestations we're seeing. If you look at like in the nephrology world and CKD, when they started to do genetic testing, the overall diagnostic yield from those genetic testings in individuals with CKD, 6 to 30 percent of the adult cohort with uh, CKD were found to have a genetic cause. 30 percent of those that were in the pediatric cohorts had a genetic cause for their CKD. And if you look at children with nephrolithiasis, children with kidney stones, about 32% of those that had kidney stones and CKD had a underlying genetic condition. So if we kind of extrapolate from the nephrology CKD picture, we know that we could do this in urology with our stone formers and see uh, higher uh, yields. So when we look at Goldfarb published a great study on, he was looking at the um, the Vietnam registry studies and twin studies. And if you extrapolate from some of the genetic uh, inheritability of stones there, about 50% of stone prevalence can be correlated to some underlying genetic condition or genetic cause. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we understand the full genetics. It might be a multifactorial genetic condition, and we don't have that at our, uh, we don't have it at our tips of our fingers right now to understand all the genetics, but it definitely says a lot of stone disease has a genetic underlying predisposition. If you look at monogenetic mutations, there's been some great studies, primarily looking at younger individuals with stones or nephroca uh, nephrocalcinosis. But if you do look at the adult population and when they've genetically tested these cohorts, 11% of them may have an underlying genetic condition resulting in their stones. And then again, if you look at the younger population, the age under 25, about 29% of those patients can be can be picked up a genetic condition causing their stone disease. And again, the yields are higher if you see other uh, cofactors like nephrocalcinosis on imaging or CKD. And so there's quite a bit of literature out there suggesting that their genetic testing is a worthwhile endeavor, specifically in certain subpopulations of stone formers. So yeah, I think that's a, a great sort of um, 
summary, and I think it dovetails with, um, you know, one of the areas which I, I feel like we, we see a lot of oxalate formers, um, and and I, I feel like um, we test, for example, on exams and whatnot, we test on this concept of, you know, primary hyperoxaluria, and, and, and so I feel like it's, it's a condition that many of us, um, when we went through training, we, we heard about um, when uh, we've been at uh, different board review courses, we've been tested on it. Um, but but I, I feel like it's probably something that we don't all appreciate in clinical practice, right? It's, it's, and, and I'm going to suspect that we probably should to a greater degree. So maybe just use you know, that condition, primary hyperoxaluria. And, and maybe just give us a little bit of a, a background on that and then maybe walk us through some of the data pertaining to that specific disease state, just to sort of contextualize some of the general stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, uh, obviously my interest lies with primary hyperoxyuria from a research standpoint. And I think it's fascinating because if you look at the genetic studies and what we would estimate the U.S. prevalence of primary hyperoxyuria, it'd be one in 38,000 individuals. Dr. Raman, as you pointed out, we learn about it, we get it on our boards, but most of us can't identify a patient with it. And so when you look at the prevalence of it just by those that are diagnosed, we're seeing that it's less than like one to three individuals per million in the United States. And we, like I said, we know the genetics would suggest a one in 38,000 uh, prevalence. So there's a huge disconnect between what we would expect and what we're actually diagnosing. And I think that disconnect is where we can help out as a urology community. There are three types of primary hyperoxyuria. Type one is the one most severe, resulting in many individuals with end-stage renal disease and need for historically a kidney liver transplant, liver to uh, change out the defect that's occurring in the endogenous oxalate pathway. And primary hyperoxyuria is a perfect example because over the last few years, we've seen FDA approval of a drug that has shown significant benefits in lowering urinary oxalate excretion and plasma oxalate. And I think this will have a profound effect on these individuals. So early diagnosis is key. If you look at the primary hyperoxyuria patients, 42% of them experience a significant delay in diagnosis, three to five years. And in 27% of them are diagnosed when their kidneys have already failed. So they're mm -hmm. end-stage renal disease. And then 53% of them have already started dialysis when they're diagnosed. And unfortunately, some of these individuals even get kidney transplants, and those kidney transplants fail because of the underlying condition. And so, and then, you know, we've unfortunately given them a kidney that has now failed because we haven't corrected the underlying yeah. genetic condition. And so I think primary hyperoxyuria is a perfect example of the disconnect and where, as urologists, we can serve at diagnosing these individuals sooner and getting them a multidisciplinary care that they deserve. So I, I feel like you, you, you've sort of laid this out really well for us. I, and, and clearly for those listening to the podcast, I think, including myself, who, who doesn't really know nearly this much in this field, it, it's evident that we probably, there's, there's, more, um, there's more of a genetic basis for kidney and stone disease that most of us appreciate. You gave some great examples with the area that you're really interested in primary hyperoxaluria. So I, I guess the, the, the practical question is, well, wh how do we do this? Like, wh what do we actually do 
how do we uh, how do we actually test? Is it easy to do? Um, so maybe just for from a real practical perspective, um, how how is this done? What's the turnaround? Um, are there any guidelines and recommendations? And obviously, I'm throwing a bunch of things at you at once, but maybe just take us through that a little bit. Yeah, the. Uh... I mean, just like anything in medicine, there's been so many advancements and genetic testing has advanced rapidly over the last few decades. And so with the rapid advancement in technology, utilizing what's called massively parallel sequencing, it's allowed for quick turnarounds, relatively cost-effective testing and access. So the tests for most of the genetic panels for kidney stones can be done either by blood samples uh, can be done by saliva or even a buckle swab. So you think about the convenience for our patients providing a point of care test. So it can be done with their lab work if they prefer blood, but a buckle swab can easily be done in the office if there's suspicion. Much of the genetic testing programs that are out there have pre-test and post-test genetic counseling. So if there's concerns from a urologist standpoint about providing appropriate counseling, all these programs allow for that. So we can have a dedicated counselor, genetic counselor, work with our patients before we do the test and after we do the test to go over the results with them. And that allows us to really provide that seamless care for these individuals that we're testing. Mm -hmm. And much of the testing is sponsored now, so it's at no cost to the patient. And, you know, I think those sponsor tests will be going on for for the foreseeable future. So we can access these for our patients with relatively no cost to them. And there are guidelines as you recommended, Dr. Raman. There's guidelines that suggest, if you look at the European Renal Association Working Group, uh, for all patients with CKD, they highly recommend genetic testing. If you look at the Oxal Europe, uh, Europe Group and the ERCNET Group, for anybody with that we suspect primary hyperoxaluria, you gotta get genetic testing. And even our American Neurological Association has in their guidelines, if you notice, say, urinary oxalate excretions above 75 milligrams per day, you should strongly consider genetic testing, especially if it's not an enteric cause to it. And then the Rare Kidney Stone Consortium recommends workup in all pediatric patients with kidney stones, and that includes genetic testing as well as the metabolic workup. Do you, do you get a sense of, and, and you summarize these guidelines really well, so obviously there, there's guidelines, if you pick the AUA guidelines, as you, as you sort of articulated very nicely, it, it really does not, it gives a very good threshold of, you know, what a 24-hour urinary oxalate excretion level is and, and the threshold for testing. Do you, do you get a sense, and you may not know this information, but I always wonder when I see a lot of these guidelines and these statements, you know, what is the level and the extent to which there's actually folks that are following these, right? So whether that's, you know, AUA guidelines and the cancer world, NCCN guidelines, um, in the stone world, some of the guidelines you talked about just now, do, do you have any sense of, is do 10%, 20%, 50%? Like, are, are people following these or, or, and I don't, you may not know the answer. I'm just sort of asking. No, I think it's a great point. I, you know, if you look at just take something simple like the metabolic workup, which again, the AUA guidelines has a clear statement that we should be performing a metabolic workup in all those that are at high risk of recurrence and even first time stone formers that are interested. And so you look at a 24 hour urine and you look at the literature that's out there. If, you know, some of the literature suggests as low as 6% of urologists are actually ordering 24 hour urines. 
And interestingly, if you look at other data and you like query the patients, greater than 90% of them would in, would want a workup, a metabolic workup, including a 24-hour urine. So again, there's a disconnect there between what we're doing as a you know practicing providers and what's you know what our patients want and what the guidelines say. And so, you know, other literature suggests maybe up to 20 or 30 percent of those patients are getting a workup. But again, no matter the way you look at it, we're probably not offering it as as often and frequently and frequent as we should for our patients. And so, so to I'm going to ask you sort of maybe the reverse question. And obviously, yeah. this is going to be more related to your practice and your experience. So obviously, you're somebody um that that's familiar with the guidelines, obviously in your own practice, you, your, your, your area of interest is hyperoxyluria. So let me ask you the opposite, which is in those patients, I, I'm sure if the person hits the threshold, you are probably going to recommend that they do this testing. Just in your own practice, in your experience, if you proposed it and recommended it to a patient ballpark, what's, what's the percentage that say, hey, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go ahead with this. Or how many say, you know, I, your point's a good one, Dr. Wood, but I, I'm just going to follow as is. Like, do you have a sense from your own practice? I think there. I'll take that in like, in my practice, I'll talk about the metabolic workup and then also the genetic testing. Sure. So about 65% of my patients are compliant with the 24-hour urine testing. And we know that it's hard to do, right? They get kits sent to their house. They have to take time out of their day, carry these jugs around and collect the urine. So I think there's issues there, but 65% of my patients are compliant with completing 24-hour urines. Um, so I think that's quite high. I think genetic testing, interestingly, I always, when I first went into it, I thought individuals would be hesitant about genetic testing, but mm -hmm. I think if I have not really, I don't, can't remember any patients that have said they would not want genetic testing if I explained to them why I was considering it, what the test entails. Again, it's usually just a panel looking at kidney stone. Uh, risk factors and genetics. So it's not looking at anything else. Like, you know, they ask me, oh, is it going to tell me if my heart's going to go out or if I'm going to have Alzheimer's? And I tell them that's not the case. This is genetic testing solely for kidney stone disease. And I find that most patients are, almost all patients are very open to the genetic testing. So if you put those two together, I think we get nervous about, you know, offering all these tests and having to evaluate them and our patients not completing them. But I think in, if you have a you know, open conversation with them and shared decision-making, almost all of them are compliant with it. And almost everybody that I think needs genetic testing wants, wants it after an explanation. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think it makes sense. And, and I, you know, I partly asked the question because, um, you know, one of the ultimate challenges we, we all face, irrespective of your specialty in urology is, you know, those office visit times get shorter and shorter, right? It's and uh, and and it's it's a lot of it's go go go. And and part of why I was asking that was it's clear that our patients do have, for obvious reason, appetite to do some of this because obviously they would prefer, uh, very much prefer, not to be sort of a uh, a Q six to twelve month surgical patient, right? I mean, so they, they have a vested interest, and I feel like in some regards the onus is on us. To, to really, you know, make sure that we're offering these, um, even in those clinics where, you know, you've got 20, 25, 30 folks, and you're trying to see as many as you can see. So that kind of brings me to my, my last sort of part that I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, which is um, obviously for many patients with kidney stones, their primary touch point is the urologist. Um, and not, not 
often um, a nephrologist, maybe if they have chronic kidney disease, but but really your their touch point is their urologist. So, you know, what is the role of the urologist when when we consider um, you, you know hereditary factors associated with stone disease? Um, and, and what's sort of your your view on on our role being maybe maybe you know I don't want to dramatize, but maybe being the quarterback of this team? Yeah. I think you made a good point. We all are very busy clinics, um, not a lot of face-to-face time with our patients just because of the way healthcare has evolved over time. But I do think like the metabolic workup and the genetic testing can be integrated pretty seamlessly and can be done quite rapidly. And even the analysis of it, like I said, for the genetic testing, you can, it's literally just a checkbox for most of these programs for counseling. And so from a urologist perspective, if it's somebody, if, if you're, if you're a, prep, a urologist that doesn't want to necessarily get into the weeds on the genetics, it's a checkbox. You fill it out, you talk to the patient, they get pre-counseling, post-counseling, it's covered. And a lot of these, once they have the pre and post-test counseling, they can be referred to other institutions with your approval. And so I think about, you know, as potentially some community providers or urologists, I'd say access the academic centers and many of us will manage the medical dietary and genetic workup for your recurrent stone formers and still rely heavily on those uh, community urologists to manage their stone disease surgically. And so I think, again, I think it's also a, just looking at your population, right? If you have somebody, you're kind of triaging them and coming up risk, risk stratification. So if they have nephrocalcinosis and large stone burden, somebody you should strongly consider if they had early onset of their stone disease and they tell you, yeah, I formed my first stone when I was 10 years old, or my parents told me I had one when I was six months old, those should all be triggering to consider genetic workup. And like I said, the testing's really, it's a checkbox. It's a form that gets filled out. Even if you talk about the 24 hour urines, most of them are really quite easy to fill out now. And then even getting subsequent testing is literally a checkbox to get order new mm-hmm. testing. So I think everything has become easier for us to integrate it into the practice and then to follow up with it. And then I, you know, I'd say if if it's difficult to follow up with it, involve a multidisciplinary approach. There are nephrologists out there that like to manage the nuances of the medical and dietary management. Once you have a genetic, if you do perform a genetic test and there's something that you're concerned about. And the counselors, you can always refer them to, like I said, someone like myself that would be happily, happily take that on and look at it, but also nephrologists, academic centers that can help with that and, you know, get more into the weeds. And there's all academic centers and uh, centers of excellence for all of these rare stone diseases that can be contacted via email, phone calls, because we're always happy to discuss these findings. And if you do diagnose a patient, there's a ton of advocacy groups. And so you think about what this means for the patient and their families and having an understanding about why they're having CKD, why they're having recurrent stone disease. And then, like I said, the treatment landscapes change drastically for a lot of these conditions. And, you know, some people say, well, even if we didn't, if, if you don't have treatment options, what is this? Why does this help? You're just putting a label on it. But a lot of these genetic conditions have other systemic findings. If you take primary hyperoxyuria, for example, if they have systemic oxalosis, which many of them do, they can get deposition of oxalate in their eyes and then go blind. So why not get an ophthalmologist early on? Like I said, they may have preserved renal function right now, but knowing that 
most of them, most of the primary hyperopsiuria type one patients are going to be end stage renal by the age of 40. If they're a 26 year old patient with multiple stones and preserved renal function, you want to get them involved now with treatment options and management because you're going to allow their kidneys to survive much longer. And so, you know, I, I always think about kidney stone disease as a chronic disease, no matter what aspect I'm managing, whether it's the metabolic dysfunction. And I think the more we get away from thinking about it as an episodic condition, and the more we start thinking about it as a chronic disease, that will change the way we work them up and the way we manage them, just like every other disease state that we manage in urology. It's chronic. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the way you just phrase that is, is just super. A uh, few, few sort of practical questions just in when you're trying to access these these multidisciplinary teams and, and um, you mentioned, for example, a, a genetic counselor, for example, um, urologists like yourself who have a knowledge base and an expertise in this domain. Do you have a sense, and, and maybe in your own practice, it seems to me that many of these visits theoretically could be done virtually tele via telemedicine. I, I mean, it doesn't seem like there would necessarily be a physical exam. It would be more reviewing data and counseling the patient. Is, is this something that you think is, is part of how we can deliver this in a broader footprint than in certain geographic areas? Yeah, great. A great point. All of the almost almost all of the programs that provide genetic testing for stone disease, all the pre-counseling and post-counseling is done virtually with the individual, mm -hmm. because like you said, you're you're relying on the R notes potentially, but also you're really relying on the genetic testing that they're the results they're getting. And in the history taking, there is no physical exam component from the counseling standpoint. And it's really to talk to the families about their risk. A lot of them may be of childbearing age and want to know what's the risk to my offspring. Uh, other ones will have siblings, parents, kids that, and they're questioning whether those individuals should get tested. And yeah, all of that can be done now virtually by telephone or by video. And so that gives a broad access to the entire United States, even the rural areas where they may not have access, easy access to an academic center. And I think that's, that's exactly it. In my practice, I provide a lot of my metabolic workup because it ships to the house. It's done at home for a lot of these kits that are sent out. So it doesn't even require the patient to bring these kits back. And so all of my follow-ups can be done virtually with these individuals mm -hmm. to discuss dietary and medical management and labs and imaging can be done at local hospitals. It takes a lot of coordination and that's where that team effort comes in from yeah. your staff and coordinators, but it can be done. And I think it changes it for the, our stone formers. And, and then the last thing I just want to ask you about is um, the, the patient advocacy groups. Um, and, and, you know, we, we hear this a lot, obviously, they're, they're well popularized in the cancer realm, right? Prostate cancer survivorship groups, bladder cancer survivorship groups, kidney cancer, you know, so on and so forth, testis cancer. Um, I, I feel like what we probably don't appreciate as much is the, the patient advocacy and uh, groups that are available for um, benign conditions, uh, non-cancer, um, not, not any less important. And, and as you alluded to, critical when you think about the spectrum where things like uh, you know, hyperoxaluria can impact. Maybe talk a little bit just about the patient advocacy groups. And I know you, you, you do a lot of work 
with uh, and are involved in the, the oxalosis and hyperoxaluria foundation. What's the sort of backbone and resource that that they provide patients? If if you're familiar with it, I, I don't want to put you yeah. Put you on the spot. I mean, there there are foundations for many of the rare diseases, but the the oxalosis and hyperoxaluria foundation, the OHF foundation, is a great example of what can be done. It is it was started by families, and it's completely run by families in the support of families, um, and then obviously providers throughout the United States and. Europe and across the world that provide their expertise in the ox, oxalate world and being there for the patient advocacy. But yeah, it's an, I think the biggest thing for the, especially patients with primary hyperoxaluria type one is accessing other individuals that have the condition that are afflicted with the condition. It is hard to picture somebody forming a stone at the age of six months and then having recurrent stone disease throughout their entire life. And if they did have a delayed diagnosis, just thinking about all they went through, multiple ER visits, multiple surgeries, multiple touch points with providers, and there's nothing more beneficial than having somebody that's gone through a similar process to you. And outside of even just the patient's interaction, uh, even you know, outside of interacting from patient to patient interactions and people that are afflicted, the families coming together and being able to give resources and support. And again, PH1 is often afflicts young, young patients. And so having a young patient that a young, you know, sibling or even a, a child afflicted with this, it helps to have that support and network there for you. And our world gets smaller and smaller, right? So having these advocacy groups can, they have a broad reach, not just in the United States. I mean, you look at OF, OHF's footprint, it is across the globe and they can access and help individuals from across the world. And so I think it's so essential for us as urologists just to point our patients in the right direction. And one place to point them to is to these advocacy groups, because there is so many resources that these advocacy groups have. And such, I mean, the amount of dedication that comes from the individuals that run these organizations and groups is incredible. So... That's great. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's a great message to to sort of finish our podcast. Well, Kyle, I, I really want to thank you. I, I actually really enjoyed learned a lot, uh, and that sometimes that's the best part of doing these podcasts is that I feel like my knowledge base increases. Uh, but I th I think you do you did a great job just sort of summarizing, um, you know, something that I think we many of us don't appreciate as much as we should, and the importance of of uh, the genetic basis of, of kidney stone disease. So I really want to thank you for your expertise. Thank you uh, for taking some time this afternoon and joining us uh, on this AUA program. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Rahman. Uh, I want to give our thanks to our audience for their time. Uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And uh, on that page, uh, Dr. Wood has provided us a number of different uh, great references for any of you that want to do any additional or deeper reading on this subject and understand the field better. Kyle, uh, again, thanks so much. Have a wonderful weekend with the family and uh, really appreciate the time. Thank you. You too.